culturally, we don't really care very much about dreams in the United States. I mean, we talk about dreams, the American dream, this dream, I dream of doing this. But we're always talking about something that we're actually consciously thinking about, that we make up ourselves. Well, what I mean when we say we don't really care about dreams in the U.S., I mean the things we have while we're asleep. Biologically, we all have dreams every night, some of which we remember, most of which we don't. But they just don't tend to have a great impact on our lives. Now, in our family, Sean and I almost never remember our dreams. I had a really weird one this week I won't bore you with. But Melanie and Colin sometimes remember theirs well enough to uh, share them with us, and they are weird people. I don't know what's wrong with them, but what they come up with is, is so ridiculous and so over the top that, you know, we're at breakfast or at dinner, we all laugh. We, we can't help but roll our eyes because it is just beyond ridiculous. But there's no greater significance. That's really the end of it for us. We should realize that's not the only perspective on dreams in the world. Even today, right, in the Islamic world, there is still a high value placed on dreams and visions. And, and God actually appears to be using these as a way to grow his kingdom in certain parts of the world because Christian missionaries have for several years reported a surge of individuals having very, very specific dreams about Jesus that then direct them to seek out a particular person, the missionary, and always to seek out the Bible. So God uses dreams in those parts of the world that are sensitive to them to bring even hardened opponents of Christianity to faith in Christ. And we need to realize that in the ancient Near East, dreams were held in even higher esteem. In fact, several occasions throughout the Bible, God uses them to communicate His truths to people who are absolute unbelievers, what we would describe as enemies of the people of God. And one such dream is the backdrop for Daniel chapter 2. We are in a series we began last week where we are walking through the book of Daniel to derive the lessons from their time in exile that apply to our lives as Christians, which are very much lives in exile in this world around us. And as we study chapter 2, I think there are some valuable lessons that we're going to learn about how to navigate our seemingly overwhelming and at times impossible lives in this strange, ever-changing, and increasingly hostile world in which we operate. Now, normally I read the text of a passage. This will be the first time in three years of preaching here that I have not read the full passage out loud to you in the course of the service. So, I want you to invite you to go ahead and get your Bible to, whether it's on your actual printed Bible, your phone, your tablet, or the Bible that's in the seat in front of you underneath, to follow along. Because Daniel chapter 2 is roughly half the length of one of my normal sermons. And so if I read all of Daniel chapter 2 and then I interpreted it and applied it, we would be late for feasting on the Word and Philip would be mad. So what I'm going to do this morning is walk through the highlights of Nebuchadnezzar's terrible, awful, no good, very bad dream. And then I'm assigning you the task of reading Daniel chapter 2 on your own, either individually or as a family, later this afternoon. And to set the stage, the year is roughly 603 B.C., might be 602. Things are a little fuzzy in the dating there. 
roughly 603 BC, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, fairly new king, it's his third year as king, roughly speaking, there's some interesting calendar stuff they did back in those days, but he is the most powerful man on earth, quite literally the most powerful man on earth, and he had a very rough night. He had a strange and terrifying dream, and so he summoned his his smartest and best advisors. He got together the wise men, and he got together the sorcerers, and he got together the diviners, and he got together the mystics, and he ordered them to tell him what the dream meant. And so the wise guys asked him, well, what was the dream? And Nebuchadnezzar realizes that they're probably trying to scam him and just tell him whatever it is he wants to hear. So... He says, first, you tell me what the dream was to demonstrate that you have actual insight. And if you don't, I will have you torn apart limb from limb. Because that's how Nebuchadnezzar rolled. Now, you've got to imagine that these these fakers, their stomachs are doing some flips right now, right? Because when Nebuchadnezzar talks about having you rip limb from limb, this is not a figure of speech. He was into that. And so they asked him again to tell them what he dreamed. And this infuriated him. And so in verses 10 and 11, the Babylonian brain trust is forced to speak a powerful truth, which we need to understand is an essential truth to understanding and interpreting this whole narrative. Right? They say, there is not a man on earth key phrase, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and here's another key phrase, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. These wise guys do know some things after all. Well, Nebuchadnezzar did not appreciate being told no. And so he orders, obviously, logically enough, the execution of every single wise man in all of the Babylonian Empire. We might call that an overreaction to say every wise man, every scholar, every sorcerer, and every diviner has got to go. But that was his decree. And so we find Arioch, the captain of the guard, knocking on Daniel's door. Now, I would interpret the passage to be that Daniel and his friends were not invited to the initial meeting. They were not very senior, so they didn't go to the initial meeting. But they had, if you follow the chronology of Daniel, probably just graduated Babylonian wise man school. And so they are covered by this blanket decree that you don't die. So Daniel says, well, what's going on? And he learns what's going on, and he immediately makes an appointment with Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on earth, even though, as we read the text, he obviously at this point has no idea what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed. None whatsoever, right? And realize that if you have an audience with a guy like Nebuchadnezzar and it goes badly, you're going to die. But he makes the appointment, and then he goes home to his friends and tells them to start praying. Well, God answers their prayers by revealing the dream and its meaning to Daniel, and and he responds to this experience. He gives this wonderful prayer of thanksgiving that uh, Mark read from earlier, and and we should recognize that it's, it's, one, it's just this beautiful doxology, this praise of God, but it also summarizes the entire message of the book of Daniel, right? All 12 chapters go into verses 20 through 23. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. 
To whom belong wisdom and might? He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. And so Daniel goes before Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar asks him, A straightforward question. Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel says, nope. Instead, he answers in verses 27 and 28, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. And so Daniel explains the dream and that it reveals centuries of future history. Right? He begins to read to us in verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel assures Nebuchadnezzar, here's the good news, you're the head of gold. And then he says that the silver, the bronze, and the iron section represent three future coming kingdoms. And then he tells him about the stone in verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Now the story ends with rewards and promotions all around, but most importantly, Nebuchadnezzar has a recognition of God's power that he professes in verse 47. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. This remarkable story reveals a great deal about God's sovereign power. And recall that is really the, the number one theme of the book of Daniel, is God's sovereignty over kings and empires, kingdoms and people. Reveals that power, but with regards to what it specifically teaches us for our 21st century Babylonian exile, I want to focus on what are, I believe, the two most striking features of this story. One is the utter impossibility of Daniel's situation that was shared with us in verses 10 and 11 by the wise men. And the other is the conclusion of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the kingdom of God. So the first lesson is the power of prayerful dependence on our sovereign God. 
See, Daniel and his friends were in an impossible situation. They literally had to bet their lives on their ability to guess Nebuchadnezzar's dream and interpret it correctly, right? If they failed, it meant death. If they did nothing, it meant death. If they wasted Nebuchadnezzar's time by being wrong, it meant death. And every wise man in Babylon understood the task was impossible. Again, to reiterate, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. And so verse 12 reports, because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. And there is a lot for us to learn from the way Daniel responded to his imminent death. Because he doesn't panic. right? He doesn't give up. He doesn't despair. He doesn't run away. He just expresses confidence in God and a reliance on the power of prayer. He made a high-risk appointment with the king, even though he had absolutely no idea what the subject was, had no idea what the answer was, but he did it because he had total confidence in God, and he was willing to bet his life on God's provision. And then Daniel got down to the real work. The only work that's really going to make a difference in an impossible situation like that. In verses 17 and 18, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now, in our type A Northern Virginia culture, right, a culture most of us know really well and have participated in for lots and lots of years, we celebrate doing things in a crisis, right? It's important for us to do something. And usually, doing something means getting really active, putting a lot of effort to solve whatever the challenge is. That's how we define doing something in Northern Virginia. But when Daniel was faced with an impossible life or death situation, right, he understood that doing something meant only one thing, getting active in prayer with the one who could do something about the situation. He and his friends earnestly sought God's wisdom and understanding, and when God delivered, they praised him, and they made sure to deflect all the credit to God when Nebuchadnezzar wanted to praise him. And the lesson for us is a straightforward one, but honestly, we all struggle to really learn it and live it in our lives, don't we? Right, because we live in Northern Virginia. We want to deal with it ourselves. But, but the lesson for us is that followers of Jesus Christ, as the adopted sons and daughters of the same God who rescued Daniel and his friends from an impossible situation, the lesson is that we need to learn to truly rely on prayer and be confident in God's power and mercy whenever we face the overwhelming or the impossible. As I will frequently point out throughout this series this fall, Christians are in exile here on earth. Right? Regardless of how comfortable or, or uncomfortable we might be this morning, as children of God, this is not our home. We are ambassadors of God, and our real citizenship is in heaven. And there are consequences of that, right? One of the consequences of living in exile is we are eventually going to wind up in some situation that is impossible or overwhelming. Right? This is just the consequence of living in a fallen world. 
And if we ever needed a reminder of the nature of a fallen world and the way it can overwhelm us, all we need to do is turn on our TVs today or check our social media. Right, the things that could overwhelm us. It could be a personal illness or a disability. It could be a financial or professional failure. It could be opposition to our faith. It could be relational breakdown. It could be any of a number of these. It could be several of these simultaneously. And again, we are seeing in Hurricane Florence a vivid reminder of how easily our lives can be overwhelmed by forces that we have no control over. At some point, we will likely be struggling, perhaps failing, to stay above water, whether that's figurative or quite literal, as we're seeing this weekend. And that's when we need to remember that Daniel's God is our God. He is still all-powerful. He is still all-good. He is ever-present. And he desires to be glorified in our lives and by our actions. And that means that in normal situations... And difficult situations and overwhelming situations and impossible situations, we must rely on prayer, not as our last resort, but with total confidence that this is our primary tool to solve every problem we encounter. As Christians, God invites us to live a life like that. He invites us to come before him in prayer like Daniel and his friends and to do it with boldness and total confidence in him. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And what should we pray about? Everything. Everything. Anything and everything that concerns us, that weighs us down, that stresses us out that gives us anxiety, that depresses us. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 commands, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, if we were to be honest with one another... I think we would find that many of us in this room today are afraid or we feel guilty to pray honestly to God about the things that worry us or frighten us. For some, we are afraid to bother God with what we think of as trivialities from his perspective. Others here might fear what would happen to their faith if God said no. But if we are anxious about anything, God wants to hear it. If we are scared or hurt or angry or frustrated by a situation we are in, God wants to hear that honest confession of our hearts. Again, as I said before and will say again, if you go to the book of Psalms, you will see literally every kind of emotion being expressed, poured out to God. And that models for us how we can pray. And while God never promises he's going to give us everything we ask, he does promise, right, in the verses I just read you, to give us peace. Right, as we learn to rely on God in both the ordinary and the impossible situations, if we learn to pray about everything that burdens us down, God will give us peace that makes no rational sense. Despite the objective, you know, objectively stressful and problematic things around us, God promises he will change us in our attitudes even if nothing changes about the situation around us. In our comfortable suburban lives, 
most days, most weeks, we have the illusion that we are in control. But that is truly just an illusion. Literally everything that we could have, that we have, that we treasure, could be altered or taken away in an instant with one diagnosis, one moment of inattention by somebody on the road, by one missed step, or as we have seen, by one massive storm that is beyond our control. Certainly this weekend provides an excellent illustration of just how precarious life on earth can be. And so we need to learn to live like Daniel and his friends, live reliant on God in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 counsels us to pray without ceasing, while Romans 12.12 says to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. Jesus was for us a model of faithful, passionate, confident prayer. And as Christ followers, we need to be like him. We need to be people of prayer daily, hourly, constantly. But I'd also like you to just notice that Daniel didn't pray alone in his time of need. He immediately went to his believing friends and they prayed together. And honestly speaking, praying together is not something we're very good at as a people. I actually read an article in the last week or two talking about why in general Americans are not very good at praying in community with others. Uh, and it was interesting. But but the consistent example of Scripture is praying together. right? We, we seldom notice that every single petition in the Lord's Prayer, our Father, give us, forgive us, lead us not, they're all plurals. right? They're meant to be prayed together with other believers. And so I would encourage each of us to begin prioritizing praying with others and making that a regular part of our spiritual lives and discipleship because there is tremendous power available when we learn to live in prayerful dependence on our sovereign God. And then there's the second key feature that really stands out from from Nebuchadnezzar's dream. That is the conclusion of that dream, that God's kingdom will overcome all earthly nations. This dream is a powerful prophecy of God's kingdom in Christ. And you know, in it, we had Nebuchadnezzar, right? We talked about he dreamed of a giant statue made of four metals, gold, silver, bronze, and then this sort of unstable mix of iron and clay. And verses 37 and 38 help us understand the gold part, right? The golden head of the statue is Nebuchadnezzar himself, established and empowered by God. All right, that part's clear. The next three parts, a little bit fuzzy. Over the centuries, there have been various interpretations of the other three kingdoms. The traditional interpretation, which I share, is that they are respectively the Medo-Persian Empire, followed by the Empire of Alexander the Great, followed by the Roman Empire. But there are others who will argue very plausibly for other empires and other kingdoms. And, And what I would say is that as interesting as that discussion is, I think it's basically irrelevant. Because if it mattered and we were supposed to know exactly who they were, God would have told us. And he didn't. Which means we're probably wasting our time when we spend too much time arguing about it. The bottom line of the vision is the one that God does explain to us. The stone. The stone not cut by human hands. The stone that smashes every earthly power that grows to fill the whole earth. This is God's kingdom in Jesus Christ. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, 
nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. This, my friends, is the kingdom that Jesus declared to us to be at hand in Matthew chapter 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, but a specific point in time, he took on human nature and body. He stepped into our world. He, he grew up to be an adult to inaugurate the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ is that stone not created by man. He explicitly refers to himself as the stone in Scripture. Eternal and sent by God. He preached, he worked miracles, all to demonstrate to us the values and the priorities and the arrival of God's kingdom here on earth. And then he inaugurates that kingdom at the cross where he dies as a willing, innocent, sin-free sacrifice to pay our accumulated debt of sin. Each and every one of us have done things that we have regretted, things which have hurt others, which have degraded ourselves, which have disappointed or failed the God who created us. Each and every one of us has sinned, and the Bible is clear. Sin incurs a debt to God that has to be paid. The clear and consistent message of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is that the wages of sin are death. Literal death. Something innocent and pure and clean has to die to pay off our debts, or else we're going to pay them off ourselves through eternal separation from God. Jesus stepped into our world to be that ultimate, perfect, once-for-all sacrifice that paid off every debt, past, present, and future. Your debts and my debts. And Hebrews 4.12 explains it this way. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And all anyone has to do to receive this gift of forgiveness and to have all that guilt and shame washed away forever is to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because Romans 10.9 assures us if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. By faith in Christ alone, Colossians 1.13 and 14 promise us he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is our new home once we accept Christ, the kingdom of God in Christ. Inaugurated by his death and resurrection, built upon the gospel, growing every day. Because just like Nebuchadnezzar's vision, right, Jesus promised the kingdom would grow over time. Right? He said, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. What began with a handful of believers in Israel now spans the globe, but there is far more ahead because we see what God has promised both through Nebuchadnezzar's dream and through the remainder of Scripture, right? His kingdom will fill the whole earth. This is the inevitable victory of God's kingdom, that all earthly kingdoms and empires will be overcome by God's kingdom, the kingdom which is already present wherever Christians minister will be completed and perfected when Christ returns. You see, our joy amidst the random miseries of this world and life is that as Christians, we know how this story ends. 
right? We know that Jesus Christ's kingdom will fill the whole world. This is our comfort. This is our confidence while we are in exiles serving as ambassadors for Christ. See, we look around this nation, and regardless of our political persuasion, I guarantee every one of us laments what we see. But as Christians, we do not despair. We do not give up. We do not become embittered or angry. Nor should we grow impatient with the sovereign God who permits the things that we see happening in this world. Rather, we can have the confidence to wait patiently, dependent on God in prayer for strength to endure. This truth also gives meaning and significance to our lives and to our work. Right? We live in an age where we're told life is a random accident, that there is no greater meaning, that there is no purpose. Well, how depressing is that message? And then we wonder why we are a nation of people who are depressed. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we know that God's Spirit lives within us and empowers us and transforms us, and that Christ himself has given our lives meaning and mission until he returns. We are to make disciples. We are to love our neighbors. We are to expand God's kingdom right here in this community. We are to be pushing back the borders of the kingdom of darkness. Wherever we go, we are to be demonstrating Christ to people who've never seen him or heard of him. They are going to be sharing God's love and making it real for people who have never experienced it, who are hurting, who are broken, who feel trapped, who are suffering. Right, this is exactly why we are doing what we're doing next weekend with our Love Our Neighbors weekend. Right, Our objective is just to get out and do some simple work for the kingdom. Prayerful dependence on God. Right, to begin to really just authentically love our neighbors the way we are supposed to. To actually take literally the great commandment. Love our neighbors, our physical next-door neighbors at Rockledge and at Thousand Oaks and Westminster and River Ridge and Harbor Drive. Right, to do whatever we can to demonstrate the love of God to those we encounter. This is completely new for us, as Ruth will tell you. You know, quite often she's never led a mission team with 80 people before, uh, much less do something that's completely new as a mission. So it's going to be interesting. This is a great exercise in prayerful dependence on our sovereign God because we're going to need to pray. We have, we have a plan, but we have no idea what's really going to happen next weekend. Right? Let's just be honest about that. So that's, that's where we want to be flexible, adaptable, and confident that God will be glorified. We see in Daniel's example the tremendous influence of a life of courageous dependence on God. A life powered by prayer, a life that is confident of God's ultimate sovereign authority and his ultimate triumph. Right? And what happened? Through Daniel, the good news of God's kingdom was shared with a king who was just fundamentally opposed to this concept, and God was uniquely glorified through this. And so each of us, in our own way, in our own places of influence and involvement, we are each being given the opportunity to, to learn to depend on God, to learn to love talking with Him in prayer, to learn to, to serve Him and His ever-growing kingdom. We know how the story ends, but each of us has a responsibility to cooperate with God in writing our own chapters, in writing a page each day, of faith, of love, of humble, dependent service to his kingdom. And so won't you pray with me now that we would do that.
Oh, Heavenly Father, we come before you with our hearts heavy for those brothers and sisters down in the Carolinas and elsewhere who are getting hammered by Hurricane Florence, who are getting a fresh reminder of just how precarious life is. And so, Lord, we want to lift those up, all those in harm's way. Lord, we ask for you to give protection, to give encouragement, to give hope, to give comfort to those who are experiencing devastation. Lord, for those who are risking their lives to try and save others, Lord, protect them and guide them and strengthen them as their energy dissipates, as they become weary. Refresh them, Lord. For those who even now are headed down to help with the disaster recovery, and of course we lift up those in our church who have already gone, Nancy this morning, Glenn tomorrow, others in days to come, Lord, we lift them up and ask for you to protect them and guide them, strengthen them for the task ahead, comfort and encourage them in the face of what they will see, and help them to be a comfort and encouragement the your literal hands and feet to those who are so desperately in need, Lord. And Lord, this storm has easily reminded us of this fundamental lesson that in life there will come times that are beyond our control, that are overwhelming, or that are impossible, Lord. And I suspect there are some in this room today who are in these seasons now and are feel, struggling to hold on. Lord, help us to just lay that struggle before you honestly and openly. Minister to our hearts. Comfort. And give peace amidst these situations. Lord, I want to just take a break now so that everyone can lay before you silently their, their fears, their anxieties, their burdens, the things that are overwhelming them, Lord. And I pray that... You would just help us to let these things go and to receive your peace and comfort. Hear our prayers, Lord. Father God, it's easy to lose heart as we look around at suffering and injustice, misery and pain. So, Lord, help us to take heart because we know how this story ends. You are victorious. Your kingdom, which is already here, will one day be completed. Lord, help us to draw strength from this, to draw encouragement from this, to find meaning in you and in service to you, Lord. But Lord, we pray for our neighbors, our community around us, those around here who are do not know you, who are still held gripped to the domain of darkness, have not yet been transformed to the kingdom of light. Lord, I ask that you would be at work in the hearts and the minds of those who do not know you, Lord, and help or be at work in our hearts. Give us a passion to to demonstrate your love and your heart for them. The love you have for each person created in your image. 
Lord, help us be a body of people as well as individual Christians who are faithful in working for the growth of your kingdom, in laboring in the fields to push back the borders of the domain of darkness for your glory, Lord. Lord, give us a sense of mission, a passion for you, and a deep compassion for those around us who are hurt and need the touch of your love. Lord, I want to give opportunity for each of us to lay before you the names of specific people we know. Neighbors, co-workers, loved ones. whom you are calling us to minister with that love. And I pray that you would reveal and play on our hearts even more names. Lord, hear our prayers. Lord God, we have the greatest good news of all imaginable good news. That your son Jesus Christ came, lived, died on the cross for our sin, and rose from the dead. That all who trusted him We'll have sins forgiven and live forever. Lord, help us to live in light of this great good news. Help us to be obedient to the great commandment that you've given us to love you and to love our neighbors. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.